can open your Bibles with me this morning to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Something a little bit different this morning, another break uh, from our series through Genesis. Don't worry, we'll pick up on that again next week. Uh, But today is the last Sunday in October, last Sunday in October, which uh, by many Protestant churches, which as a Baptist church we are, is celebrated as Reformation Day, Reformation Day, and it was on the 31st of October, actually, 1517, that uh, a monk, Martin Luther, nailed his 95 theses to the uh, door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, and he didn't mean it to set off a wildfire, but eventually it was the spark that set off the wildfire of what became the Protestant Reformation. Now, we won't, um, I could talk all day about the Protestant Reformation, but you'll have to come to the church history class for that. Um, but basically, what was going on in the Protestant Reformation was that Luther and many other people all around Western Europe were reading their Bibles um, for the first time, actually, in a long time in the original Greek. And they were comparing it to what the church was teaching at the time. And they were saying, this doesn't line up. And they were saying, this doesn't line up on a lot of things. And the 95 Theses were just the beginning of a list of those things. But this morning, I want to, I want to talk about really the, the heart, the central issue, at least for Luther in the Protestant Reformation. And this issue centers on what was for Luther despair. Despair. Luther despaired because of the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. As you read the story of his life, The first decades of his life are marked by continual struggle about this question of the righteousness of God. Luther knew that God was holy, righteous, and he knew, perhaps more sensitively than most, as you read his journal entries, that he was a sinner, that he was unrighteous. And as you read the early years of his life, basically Martin Luther's struggle was to try to bridge the gap, to try to make himself righteous enough to enter the presence of God. And his despair, his continual struggle was that he couldn't seem to do it. As hard as he tried, and he tried hard, probably harder than most, He he entered a monastic orders, sort of against the will of his father. He became a monk. He started praying all day. He started reading his Bible constantly. He removed himself from all the temptations and distractions of the world. And yet, the more he did, the more he realized, as hard as he tried, deep down, the problem wasn't just that he sinned. The problem was that he was a sinner. As hard as he could, he couldn't bridge the gap between his unrighteousness and the righteousness of God. He explains it this way. 
My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. He was plagued by the righteousness of God. And he, he writes actually about studying the book of Romans, which is where we're going to be this morning. And in Romans chapter 3, one of his mentors, basically to try and fix Luther's problem, because this thing plagued his life, assigned him to teach scripture. And so he started studying the Bible seriously. And one of the books he taught was the book of Romans. And as he studied the book of Romans, he came in contact with this term, with the righteousness of God. And when he came in contact with this term, for him it was a weight. It was like a bludgeon, a hammer. Every time he read the term, the righteousness of God, he would, he would be crushed under the weight of God's holiness. He'd realize, I'm so unworthy. And he would read, as we're about to read, Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. And he'd say, oh! And yet he says this, yet I clung to, the, to dear Paul, right, he's writing Romans, I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. His sense is there's something more going on here. And eventually he realized, as we're going to see this morning in Romans chapter 3, that we're hopeless on our own. Martin Luther realized that well. But that our only hope of righteousness is in Jesus Christ. And actually that in Jesus and what God has done in him, we have been given as a gracious gift the very righteousness of God. And what Luther realizes eventually is that this passage on the righteousness of God is not a weight, it's not a bludgeon, it is life. This is what he says. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the the just, the righteous, shall live by faith. And then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us, makes us righteous by faith. And here's what he says, and maybe you can identify with this. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The weight, after all these decades, lifted. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate of heaven. A gate of heaven. My prayer is that it, it would be that to us this morning as we study it. Our main idea this morning is that the only hope 
Our only hope of righteousness is in Jesus Christ. And my prayer would be that we would believe in him and through him to receive the righteousness of God. Let's read our passage together this morning. We're in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. In your pew Bibles, that's page 884 if you're following along there. Romans 3, and we're going to start in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in our own power, we labor under a heavy burden and are unable to lift it. And we come to you this morning and to your word, much like Martin Luther, in desperate need of you. With nothing to bring, we ask, Lord, that you would help us, that you would be gracious to us, that you would show us Jesus, and through him, you would open to us a gate of heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our only hope of righteousness is in Jesus Christ. The question I want to focus our study of the passage this morning is this, how can we be made righteous? That was Luther's question. It's what he wrestled with for years. How can we be made righteous? And Paul's going to lay it out for us. He's going to show us how we can be made righteous. And before he gives us the answer, he has to tell us what isn't the answer. How can we be made righteous? First, the Apostle Paul shows us here in Romans 3, as he writes to the church in Rome, that we can't be made righteous by the law. We can't be made righteous by the law. We see this in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That the righteousness God is revealing, is manifesting, isn't coming through the law. And this is sort of the the end of a discussion he's been having in the first part of Romans 3. And in the first part of Romans 3, he's dealing with this question of, of Jews and Gentiles. They're all Christians, but there's some of these Christians are Jews. They were born into the line of Abraham. They grew up going to synagogue. They knew their Bibles. These are the church kids. And then there's the non-church kids. And there's this whole debate as to whether the church kids really have any advantage, okay, in terms of righteousness. 
Like, are the ones who grew up going to synagogue, hearing the, the, the Torah read, are they more righteous than the Gentiles who are just now meeting Jesus? And Paul's answer is, no. No. Absolutely not. There's no difference. And in fact, he says, the ones who know the law are in some ways more culpable because they know the law and they've sinned anyways. Right? And he says this in verse 20, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified or made righteous. We're going to see that word throughout this passage. And it's almost the same word that you see translated righteous. Okay? It's the same Greek root. So justified means made righteous before God. By works of the law, no human being will be made righteous in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is what happens when we as sinful human beings come to the word of God and we read, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You shall honor your mother and father. You shall not steal. You shall not worship idols. Right? We read the law of God, and if we're doing it wrong, we say, oh, I do all that. And if we're reading it right, we see, oh, I do all that. I'm a sinner. The law reveals our culpability. The law reveals our unrighteousness. If we're doing it right, it shows us our need. It shows us that we're actually, we're right up there with Luther on our own in despair. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We like to convince ourselves this is not true, or at least it's not as bad as we think. We often do this by comparison. Right? We point to the person next to us and say, well, at least I'm not like them. Um, J. Vernon McGee recounts a story of um, jumping off the Santa Monica Pier with some friends. And at the Santa Monica Pier, out in the bay, you can see Catalina Island. It's like a mile off or something like that. And, and McGee remembers sort of joking with his friends, which of us can get to the island? You're not going to make it to the island. But, but they'd, they'd really compete with each other, right? One would jump off, and the next one would jump off and say, hey, I got further than you, right? Three or four or five feet further. Right? One guy made it 10 feet. Maybe the next guy made it 15 feet. I made it further than you, and you go away patting your back. I made it further than he did. But who reached the island? No one. Right? It's easy to compare ourselves with the person next to us. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, none of us make it, can make it, can ever make it to the righteousness of God on our own works. We can't do it. By the, law, by the works of the law, no person, no human being will be justified. And so I'd want to encourage you this morning, if you're reading the Bible wrong, if you're saying, well, I'm actually pretty good, I think if I came before the Lord today and he examined my life, I would be righteous, I would want you to see you're deceiving yourself. It's not true. According to God's word, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And before we can understand the cure, we need to know that we have a disease. We need to know that we need the cure. We actually need to go through Luther's despair before we can see the beauty of the cross. So 
but I want to encourage you this morning, if you're hoping in your righteousness and your law-keeping to justify you before God, abandon hope. It's not going to work. How can we be made righteous? First, not by the law. Okay, then how? And second, Paul's going to show us it's by grace alone. I can remember well the feeling of walking into my high school social studies class and sitting down next to my neighbor in my desk and being asked, so what'd you do your project on? And responding, I forgot about it. And it's due today. (laughs) And class is about to start. I can remember the pit in my stomach. And I can remember well the thoughts racing through my head as I walked the short distance from my desk to the teacher's desk to beg. (laughs) Nothing in my hands I bring. Please, would you, would you give me another day? It was due today. I've had the assignment for months. I've known it's coming. I can only plead on the basis of the teacher's grace. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. The word justified again here means made righteous. And this is really where things begin to click in Luther's mind. He was made righteous. I know I'm not righteous. That's what the verse says, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are made righteous and are justified by his grace as a gift. Luther's fear and perhaps our fear is that if we come to the throne of God with nothing in our hands, we'll be turned away, given the cold shoulder. This is a false image of God. Our God is righteous, but he is also gracious. And the promise, the light that begins to appear in the darkness here in this this passage is that God somehow can actually take sinful, unrighteous people and make them righteous give them righteousness that we could actually come up to the teacher's desk and we're handed a finished assignment and told i'll actually present it for you sit down you've got an a plus this is grace all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god and are justified by his grace as a gift and and then the question becomes how How is this possible? How can a righteous God, a holy God, a good God, allow sin to go unpunished? How can a righteous God allow people to go on distorting and destroying his creation without justice, without recompense? And the answer comes in the blood of Jesus Christ. How can we be made righteous? Not by the law, by grace alone. And here thirdly, by the blood of Jesus 
alone. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. How does the math work that a holy God can forgive sin and still be righteous? Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Who is Jesus? Well, who did he say he was? He came into the world and he said, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Believe the gospel. He began doing things that only God can do. He's the Son of God, God in the flesh. This is what we remember at Christmas, right? That Jesus is Emmanuel, God actually come into the world, God among us, and yet not just God, truly God and truly man, a human being. And so the person of Jesus, he's unprecedented. We've never seen anyone like this before. This is God among us, and he's also Righteous. Since Adam and Eve, every son of Adam, every daughter of Eve that's ever walked to this world has been polluted by sin. And yet here Jesus comes along and he's like a new Adam, perfectly righteous, without sin. The writer of Hebrews tells us he was tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. Jesus, the righteous Son of God. And the puzzle at the end of Jesus' life that even his disciples didn't understand was that Jesus, who they expected to be this great king, who indeed was this great king, came into the world, taught for three years, and then was crucified on a Roman instrument of torture. He was killed. And and we wear Roman torture devices around our necks and put them up in our places of worship. Why? Why? Not for the cross itself, but for the one who was upon it. The disciples didn't understand what Jesus was doing, but Jesus knew full well what he was doing. He had been sent on a mission, verse 25. God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. This is a technical term. Probably don't use it in everyday language, but it's important for us to understand. If you want to know what propitiation is, think back to the Old Testament. Before the coming of Christ, the people of God had to atone for their sins somehow. They were a sinful people, and yet they were supposed to be living in the presence of God. And so God made a way for them to atone for their sins. And what you would do a number of times a year is that you would come into the temple and that typically the head of the household would come and he would put his hand on the head of an animal and it would be sacrificed there in the temple. And this is a sign that actually the sins of that man and of that family were going to be carried by the family no more but that the sins of this family would be upon this animal. 
that God's wrath is against sin, but in kindness, God made a way for his wrath to be poured out on this animal and not on his people. That's what propitiation is. It's turning away, redirecting the wrath of God. And so you see, do you see what what we have here on the cross? That actually God himself, God himself steps in and becomes the propitiation for our sins. The writer of Hebrews tells us that actually all those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were just pictures. They weren't finally effective. They were pointing forward to a better sacrifice, the righteous Son of God, who actually on the cross, as he died, took upon himself the eternal God, an eternal weight of sin, bearing it in our place. And that because of his death and because of his resurrection, not only are our sins able to be put on him, but his righteousness given to us. This is justification. That we can be made righteous by God's grace as a gift through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's through the blood of Jesus and only through him that we can be made righteous. People who know Jesus and who know the gospel down to the deepest parts love the cross. The cro- not as an instrument of torture, but because of the one who hung upon it. Because on the cross, any of us who might be tempted to feel that God is a distant father who doesn't care about us and will probably rebuke us when we come home, see the love of God on display. in a way that nothing else can can do. That on the cross, God the Father willingly gives up God the Son, and God the Son willingly dies in our place. This is the love of God, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I would want to encourage you this morning, if as a Christian, your prayer life is growing dry, you feel like you're in a, a, a dead period in terms of your, your walk and your faith, meditate on the cross. Consider the cross. Consider the love of God and let the love of the Father soften your heart. This is the love of God that apart from anything we deserved, we, we know what's supposed to be coming. In grace, He gave himself for you. How can we be made righteous? Not by the law, by grace alone, through the blood of Jesus alone. 
And so then the question is, how can that righteousness be mine? How can I be made righteous before God? And the answer is by faith. And by faith alone. This teaching is littered throughout this passage. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For who? All who believe. Verse 24, we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Through the cross, God is inviting any who would come. He says, here is the righteousness of God, right? That's what we read, verse 21. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested. The Greek here means like proclaimed, published. It's like God has sent out a news brief to the whole world. Here it is, the righteousness of God for any who would receive it. The gift of righteousness through Jesus for any who would come. It's like a dinner invitation. The table has been set. God has laid the feast. Through Christ and his body and and his blood, through his death and in the power of his resurrection, life for any who would have it. Reconciliation with God for any who would come. Eternal life. Here's the feast. It's been set. If you've ever been invited to dinner and you ask, can I bring anything? And I love when people tell me, just, just yourself. We've told people that before ourselves. Just yourself. Just bring yourself. And that's what God says. There's nothing we can bring to the table. We're clothed in rags. right? We're desperately hungry and in need with nothing to bring to the table. And God opens the door and he says, here, have it all. My very righteousness, yours. Just come to the table. Just come to the table. I don't know if you've ever received a dinner invitation that you're not sure is actually genuine. Or you know they've invited you, but you wonder, do they actually want me there? And I think we can wonder that about the Lord. We can wonder if he's sort of given us an invitation out of obligation, but we're not sure what would actually happen if we showed up at the door, if he's actually going to be good on his word. And I think in one way, the essence of faith is merely to take God at his word. He's given the invitation. He's set the table. The question is, will you sit down? Will you come in and sit down at the Father's table? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he is the Son of God who came into the world to die for our sins, who rose from the grave, who is alive today at the right hand of the Father and is coming again? Do you believe this? And then if you believe that, do you believe it's enough for you 
that he is enough for you, that the cross is enough for you? Have you trusted that? It doesn't have to be a great faith. It can be as tiny as the mustard seed, just enough to walk in the door and sit down at the table. You don't have to have enough faith to accomplish anything. You just have, enough, have to have enough faith to eat. Here is bread, the body of Christ. Here's the cup, the blood of Christ. Enough for you. Take, eat. We'll celebrate the Lord's Supper next week. Jesus has actually, in the context of the church, physically set us a table. And he said, come. Come. Here is the gospel. Jesus for you, if you would have him. Will you have him? How can we be made righteous? Not by the law, by grace alone, by the blood of Jesus alone, through faith alone, and finally, to the glory of God alone. To the glory of God alone. Verse 25, halfway through, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul here is explaining, in the Old Testament, God forgave sins all the time. And the question is, how could he do that? taking money out on loan. It's like, well, how's he going to pay for that? How do those sins get paid for? Those ones he passed over. This is Jesus, right? This is to show God's righteousness, right? That God is shown to be righteous in these last days through Jesus Christ, through the blood of his son. And I love this phrase, that God might be, the, might be just and the justifier. And again, when we see this word just or justice, it's the same root to the word righteousness. God is righteous and he's the righteous maker. Through Jesus, God is shown to be righteous in that he does not leave sin unpunished. His wrath is actually poured out on his son. But that through the cross too, his mercy is exalted. His mercy is glorified. And we see that God is both just, righteous, and the justifier, the one who makes us righteous through the blood of Jesus. And it, this truth resounds and will resound throughout all eternity, not to our glory, but to God's. If all this is true, if we have nothing to bring to the table and God has laid a feast of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and he's offered us for free, we just have to believe the invitation and sit down, then how much credit do we get to take for dinner afterwards? None. Nothing. Nada. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded we have no boast but Jesus Christ. One thing to caution against is that the longer we sit at the table, the longer we're part of a household, oftentimes the more tempted we can become to think that 
that we deserved it in the first place. We can get a sense of ownership like this is all ours. And we don't. True humility as a Christian begins at the gospel and begins with understanding that we don't deserve any of it. We never have and we never will. And yet he's given it to us all anyways. And this is why one day when we stand in the presence of God, no longer through the veil, but face to face, it is not my praises which will be sung. It is not your praises which will be sung. It is the eternal song of praise to the crucified Lamb of God and to the Father, which will resound throughout all eternity. This is my story, this is my song, praising the Savior all the day long. How can we be made righteous? Not by the law, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. These are four of the five solas of the Reformation. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Sola fide, through faith alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone, soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. This is the foundation on which we stand as a church and as Christians. This is our hope in life and death. Jesus, totally sufficient from first to last. Our only hope of righteousness is in Jesus Christ. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. And may it be so for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have nothing to bring. No righteousness of our own. But to the cross we cling. And in Jesus we know you have given us everything. We ask, Lord, this morning that you would justify us, that you would make us righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. We believe he is the Son of God. We believe he lived. We believe he died for sinners. We believe he rose again. We believe he's seated at the right hand of the Father. We believe he is coming again. And this is our hope. We worship you for the spiritual feast you have laid before us. We long one day at your return to sup at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And until that day, give us hearts of joy and feasting as we celebrate the victory we have in Christ over sin and death. And make us joyful emissaries of this news to our dying day. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Lord.
Praise God, Lord.